All right, I hope your Bible isn't sitting on the refrigerator in the kitchen. I hope you've got it in front of you, and if you do, then turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. But if you need a Bible, maybe yours is sitting up there in that lost and found, raise your hand, and Armando or one of our other ushers would be happy to bring those to you. We want you to have that word in front of you so that you uh, can see with your own eyes that the word, of the, word, the word of the Lord is being preached and is being represented faithfully here. So we also have some note sheets and some pencils. Uh, if those things are more of a distraction than a help, then just disregard them. But if they are useful, uh, if nothing else, it might give you something that in the middle of the week, you want to kind of think back on the things that you learn on a Sunday. You pull that sheet out and you just kind of briefly run over the points again. And God can reinforce the things that you've been learning and bring them back to your memory again. I know I have to sometimes hear things several times before they begin to sink into my mind and into my heart. So uh, hopefully that is a benefit to you. But if you got your Bible, we would love for you to be open in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The text that we're going to be meditating on today will be familiar to you if you've been here the last several weeks because we just looked at it 14 days ago. So we're in 1 Corinthians 15 and we're going to take a step back as Paul preached through verses 29 through 34 last week, but we're going to turn our eyes again to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20 through 28. So I'm going to read that out loud at this moment. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Let's take a moment and pray. Lord God, as we consider your word today, we're going to be thinking about some very lofty concepts. Father, every time I preach through the doctrine of the Trinity or its related subjects, I always feel like I'm almost tiptoeing through a theological minefield. It's so easy to say the wrong word and send somebody down the wrong path or do them harm. And so I do pray, God, that you would guard the sheep. Lord, help me to be a faithful shepherd to them and the sheep as well as I need to hear the things that are being preached today. May your word bring enlightenment to our eyes. Help us to carry the proper reverence for our understanding of Father, Son, and Spirit. Triune God, we love you, and we know that there is none like you, God. So may we not make you any less than you are, Lord. And if there are aspects of who you are that we struggle to understand, then let us just rejoice in the mystery of them. Let us not think beyond what is written, Lord God, but help us to understand that what you have revealed to us is all good for us. And so we thank you for this word. Uh, please put it in our hearts, God, and help us to be obedient to it. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The 15th chapter is all about resurrection, as uh, you probably have seen by now if you've been lingering with us through this study. And the important part it plays in our, our assurance and our eternal state. The resurrection is critical to our assurance. It helps us 
to have great confidence that for, uh, without a doubt, the Lord is going to raise us up in the final days and give us an eternity to worship Him, not just in spirit, but in, in body, to serve Him and to come after Him in the ways that He has ordained for us to do so. When I preached this passage two weeks ago, the Apostle Paul spoke of Christ's resurrection being a kind of a precursor to the many who will be resurrected in the last day. Jesus is described as the first fruits. We talked about how that was an agricultural term. It's kind of like the initial deposit of the harvest that is sure to come. If the first fruits are good, then what comes after it will surely be good. So when Jesus gave his life on the cross, he was battling not just our sin, but he was also battling the consequences that flow from our sin. In his death, Jesus paid the penalty for the sins of his people. But in his resurrection, on the third day, Jesus set up another victory that would in time mean the definitive and final defeat of Jesus' last enemy. And if you remember the preaching from two weeks ago, who was the last enemy? The last enemy is death, right? Death itself. And by rising triumphant over death, and declaring that all who belong to him will do the same, Jesus guarantees that the consequences of sin, that death itself, will soon be overcome once and for all. Since Christ is the firstfruits, the elect are positioned as the remaining harvest, sure to rise up again with new bodies on the day of judgment. Now, I didn't have long enough to address a significant aspect of this passage two weeks ago. So rather than just breeze right through it and pass through the chapter quickly, we're going to double back to that passage and we're going to give it proper attention this morning. Verses 25 through 29 speak to the complete expression of kingly authority that will be established when Jesus' last enemy is defeated, when death is no more. The last part of the paragraph is about authority. It's about who will rule and over whom will he rule. So we need to make sense of Paul's description, specifically of how Jesus the Son interacts with God the Father. Let's examine each statement verse by verse. Now at times our study of God's Word is going to be immediately applicable to us. I'm, I'm always encouraged when right after a, a service someone comes up to me and says, man, that speaks right to what I'm going through right now. I know exactly how to take this Word now and live it out in my life. And sometimes it's like that, friends. At other times, our study of God's Word might be more difficult, it might be more labored, and we might need to really dig into the details of a text. And the benefit that we gain from thinking carefully about the Scriptures may not be as immediately obvious to us. I, I encourage you, I implore you, do not shy away from this. Though this passage is going to be quite theological and technical this morning, it's not beyond the scope of what we can understand with the help of the Holy Spirit. Because we will be talking about the person and the nature of God Himself, we're going to need to stretch our minds a little bit because God is, He is mighty. You serve an awesome God. He is beyond what is normal. So we might come out of the process feeling a little bit sore intellectually as we stretch our minds to fit the magnitude of what God is. Nevertheless, this is one of the key ways that our relationship with the Lord grows and deepens by not only saying amen to what we already know, but by building upon our knowledge of God, by meditating on the details that we might normally take for granted or that we might perhaps never bother to even think about before. 
So remember, this passage feels a bit more confusing than it needs to. We talked about this a little bit two weeks ago because of all of the personal pronouns that Paul uses in the, in the process of these verses. So like last time, uh, I'm going to do you a favor. I'm going to include in our verse-by-verse examination some clarifications as to which pronouns, the he's and the him's uh, and the theirs, which person they refer to. Do they refer to Jesus? Do they revert to the Father? Uh, the determinations that I make in showing these to you are going to show up in brackets in the scriptures that are on the screen. And they're not based on just my personal opinion, but they're based on the fact that Paul is actually quoting two Old Testament passages here. He's quoting Psalm 110, verse 1, and he's quoting Psalm 8, 6. And those source verses make it more clear. If we were to go back and spend a lot of time in them, which we, we, we did a little bit two weeks ago, to make it more clear who's being referred to here by these pronouns. So that's, that's where those determinations were made. So look at verse 25. It says, For he, and referring to he, it means Jesus. Jesus must reign until he, the Father, has put all of Jesus' enemies under the feet of Jesus. He has to reign until that has happened. So verse 25 makes it clear that something must continue. Something's got to endure. Jesus must continue to reign. That should be a comfort to us, that the reign of Christ will not end. But it also should be clarity to us because it means that Jesus is currently reigning. Some people are confused by that. They look forward to a day when, when Satan will no longer be the prince of the world and he won't have dominion over this place and Jesus will then take over. But in reality, the scripture declares that Christ is already currently reigning and this passage of scripture affirms that because it shows us that he must continue to do so until the final day. Acts 2 verse 36 in this amazing sermon that Peter preaches at Pentecost. He says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ. The word Lord there means master. It refers to his kingship. This Jesus whom you crucified is not defeated. He is not dead. He is alive. And he is reigning currently, presently. And so Paul builds on that here by saying that he must reign until the second coming, until the second advent of Jesus. That reign will not be interrupted. And no matter the circumstances that befall the church, we must understand that Jesus' reign is not being jeopardized by those circumstances. It is not properly threatened because his reign is perpetual. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father in the position of power. That is not a position of observation. It's a position of rule. He is the fulfillment of the covenantal promises that were made to David that God would provide an heir from the seed of David to rule on the throne of Israel and that that king would rule perpetually. He would not rule for a season and then be replaced by somebody else. So Jesus is currently reigning and he must continue to reign. Now while God the Father is continually working victory in the reign of the Son, a remarkable change will happen at the consummation of the kingdom. It says he will reign until the Father has put all of Jesus' enemies under the feet of Jesus. Now here Paul is pointing to a significant juncture in history. It's a juncture that the believer should look forward to. At this point in history, there will be a very significant development. King Jesus will put an end to every opposition in all of the kingdom. Now, just so we understand this clearly, Jesus currently reigns, 
But it is not a reign without opposition. He is reigning from his throne. But much like most of the kingdoms you're familiar with, that doesn't mean that there aren't people who are trying to knock him off the throne, that there aren't people who are trying to oppose him, that there aren't cultures trying to rise up against him and movements that would make little of the great things that God is doing. He is reigning over all of these things, but there is opposition. After the day of judgment, when Christ returns for his church, there will no longer be any opposition. Every potential resistance will be subjugated to Christ. The Father is securing the final victory by empowering the Son and sovereignly working in such a way that victory is sure and there is no chance at defeat. The eternity that we will spend worshiping God, God in our resurrected bodies will not be a time where we are cautiously looking over our shoulders, wondering if there will be another threat to the kingdom. No, it will be a time when we will rejoice because all of Christ's enemies will be his footstool. Now, catch how this is being done. Note the flavor of the passage. This victory is accomplished through cooperation. There is harmony here between the Godhead. The Father and the Son are moving towards the same ends. They are accomplishing a singular plan upon which they completely agree. And if I had more time this morning, that's always the uh, mantra of the pastor in the pulpit. If I had more time, we would spend some time looking at what is called the covenant of redemption, which is this idea that even before God struck up a single covenant with man, that he had already made an agreement upon covenant with himself in heaven, that there would be a fall, that there would be redemption, and through Jesus Christ, the glory of God would be amplified forever and forever. But we don't have time for that. Though the God the Spirit is not spoken of here, we can rest assured, uh, rest assured that he is also involved in this process, that God the Father and God the Son harmoniously are working towards this great and grand cosmic victory, and that the Spirit is working his part in these same goals and making his own contributions to the results. Verse 26 of our passage today continues on. It tells us who the triune God is working against, right? Verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And so the destruction of death means that death will have lost its place. It will have fulfilled its use in the economy of God. No longer will what is alive be subject to death. Death was a necessary consequence of sin. But sin, having been totally defeated, and, and the time of earth, earthly occupation having concluded, death will no longer be an option for what is alive. The resurrected in Christ will live eternally. Their lives will never be in jeopardy again. Those who died apart from Christ will live for eternity too, experiencing a judgment that is fitting for their sin. So death will have died. It will have become extinct. And now here's where things are going to get a little bit tricky in verse 27. For God the Father has put all things in subjection under His, meaning Jesus' feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that He, the Father, is accepted who put all things in subjection under him, Jesus. So Paul is pointing out an exception to this, this statement that is framed by the powerful word all. The word all is a very big word, and we need to take a minute to appreciate the magnitude of just what is being said here. All who oppose God will lose definitively, period, end sentence. Do you get that? Do you understand the finality of Christ's victory? All things will be put in subjection under the feet 
of our Savior. The victory of Jesus will be absolutely complete. It will be thorough. It will reach to the edges of the universe, and it will be final. There will not be another chapter in which another threat will present itself. The word all is a very big word. The wicked, of course, are subjected in punishment under this victory. Without exception, those who have sin on their record, those whose records have not been washed clean by the blood of Jesus Christ, will utterly regret their rebellion. Their stubbornness will burn away like chaff in a raging fire. They will not be able to put up any resistance when faced with the almighty power of the living God. Their defeat will be so complete that in some ways it may feel anticlimactic to us who are used to the theatrics of Hollywood struggle. There will be no back and forth between Satan and the Lord God. There will be no struggle. Simply there will be a word of judgment from the Lord and they will be forever cast into the lake of fire. The faithful, those whom God has set aside for his glory, will be subjected to Jesus as well. In fact, they already are subjected to Jesus. They are his subjects, aren't they? Those who call Jesus Savior must know that they have not been saved into some autonomous free agency. We're not allowed to just go and do whatever we want. Now, we've been saved into a kingdom. We have been saved into a citizenship. So those who call after Christ have not been saved into some weird new reality where we are, we are of equal standing and freedom that, uh, to God. No, we are called to be the subjects of the king. So the subjugation that's spoken of is terrible for those who do not have Jesus as Savior, but it is beautiful and inviting to those of us who have been ushered into the kingdom and are now welcome guests there, who not only belong there, but are united to the king in a familial sense. So we're about to tighten our focus with this passage, but before we do, let's not miss the gravity and the magnitude of Jesus' complete victory here. All his enemies, including death itself, will be placed forever under his rule and under his power. But in part because of the magnitude of that declaration, Paul does feel compelled to offer some clarifying remarks here to the Corinthians. And though they have the potential, these remarks have the potential to confuse us if we don't think about them carefully, these clarifying remarks are very helpful in making us think about the unique nature and complexity of the triune God that we serve and worship. When the Psalms speak of the Father putting all things under the feet of Jesus, Paul points out a notable exception here. The Father, of course, is not put under the feet of Jesus. Jesus is not going to be reigning over the Father. And that might seem to us kind of obvious. If that's the case, praise God. But it was important enough for Paul to make sure that the Corinthians didn't take that the wrong way. You might have noticed that in our worship set this morning, we sang several songs about the beauty and the wonder of the triune nature of our God. He is one God but he exists in a very unique manner. He is one God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. This Trinity, this idea of the Trinity is an essential doctrine. It's not one we can just say, well, we can all disagree on that, but it's also a complex one. So there are aspects of it that we may disagree upon, and we should make every effort to understand and appreciate this facet of God's Existence, Because the more we can say amen together on how we see the Trinity, the more united we will be as a church. So turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. We're going to look at chapter 1. While there are many, many texts 
which illustrate the concept of the Trinity for us. This passage is a classic text, and it's a fundamental truth that John establishes right up front, right in the very beginning of his gospel. As he's trying to point to people so that they might believe that Jesus is the Christ, he shows us right up front that there's something special about Jesus and his Christhood. And so in John chapter 1, starting with verse 1, it says, and this, this, these verses should probably uh, really resonate, you probably are familiar with them. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. While the verses that follow on uh, describe some wonderful things about Christ in that first chapter, the fact that He was instrumental in the creation of all things, the fact that He is the light and the life of, of all men, we're just going to focus here on this, the very important statements that are made in the first verse. Now, before we look at verse 1 in its parts, I just want you to peek real quick down at verse 14, just for clarity's sake. John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So, so that we're all on the same page, and we're crystal clear on what's being said in verse 1. When John speaks of the Word, who's he speaking of? Say it out loud. Jesus, he's speaking of Christ. Verse 14 makes that explicitly clear. Jesus is the one becoming flesh. He is the one who dwelt among us. He is the only glorious Son of God the Father. He is the one who is full of grace and truth. So when it says word in verse 1, it means Jesus. So back to verse 1 again. Now look at John 1.1. Three very important facts are on display here. First fact. In the beginning was the word. Jesus, the Word of God, was alive before the beginning of time and before the creation of all physical things. Here we are standing at the, the very beginning of all that we can know. And there, existing already, is the uncreated one, Jesus Christ. This shows us that Jesus is unique. Of all the men who ever walked the earth, even including Adam, only Jesus existed before time was established. That tells us something very important about Jesus. We need to think about him in a significantly different way than we think about any other man, right? Every other man has a beginning. And we learn here that the beginning of Jesus was not when Mary conceived him in her womb, that he existed before that time. We learn that Jesus was in the beginning. Is Jesus a true man? Yes, indeed he is. Is he more than a true man? Definitively, yes, he is. And the doctrine of the Trinity helps explain why that is so. So the first statement, in the beginning was the Word. Second statement, and the Word was with God. Now this statement makes us think in a very specific way about the Father and the Son. They both existed before time. Jesus is not a created being, nor is the Father. And they existed here, as we read, side by side. Jesus is with the Father. Thanks to this statement, we know that the Father and the Son are not different names for the same being. The Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father, for the Son is described as being with the Father. So many heresies and false teachings are just dashed against the rocks here in one verse in the book of John. Modalism, the idea that the Trinity is, is God the Father transforming into God the Son, taking on flesh, and then later transforming into the Spirit to dwell in the hearts of man. That's called modalism. And uh, it is taught even today in oneness churches, oneness Pentecostal churches. 
It's false. It can't be true because here Jesus the Son is with God the Father. The whole reason I'm taking you back through what is essentially the doctrine of the Trinity 101 is because 1 Corinthians 15, 28 makes us think very carefully about the relationship between the Father and the Son and how they interact, how they interface with one another. So there are two distinct persons being referred to here. Um, if we had more time, we would look at the third person of the Trinity. There, there are scriptures that show us that in many of the same ways John 1.1 1, 1 is pointing to the connection between the Father and the Son, so too is there this unique, holy connection between the Spirit, the Father, and the Son. But focusing just on the Father and the Son right now, those two persons are unique in a very special way. Third statement. And the Word was God. The word was with God shows us that the Father and the Son are distinct from one another. But the word was God shows us that they are also importantly the same. They are also importantly united and equal to one another. The Son is one with the Father in a way that we can hardly even grasp with our finite minds. He is at the same time his own person and simultaneously of the same nature as God the Father and God the Spirit. What seems to us on the surface to be a contradiction, how can the Son be with God and also be God, has caused us to come to terms with the fact that God's existence is very different than our own. Every human in this room can be rightfully said to have a human nature, right? Anybody here not have a human nature? I think we all, we can all say we got that, right? Human nature. We're all made in God's image. We have the capacity to reason and think abstractly. We're all limited by time and space. There are places that we are not. There's one place that we are. We will live for a finite amount of time. We, we were born. We have a beginning. This is things that human beings all have in, com in common. We all have a capacity for language that goes far beyond other created things. We all instinctively worship. We don't all instinctively worship the right things, but it is human to worship and to exalt and to glorify. That's what we were made for. So these aspects of the human nature are shared between us, and yet each of us is very unique from one another, aren't we? While those of us who are trusting in Jesus strive to have a unity between us, as we work towards being one in body in the name of Jesus Christ, we are far from being perfectly unified. So we have to give each other grace, right? Because we're not the same. We come from so many different backgrounds. We have different ideas about things. Our limited experience causes us to interpret the scripture in slightly different ways. And so as much as we strive to be one church who, who has one mind and thinks correctly about the Lord, there is diversity here. We are far from being perfectly unified. Even between married couples in this room who have a special covenant, a union, uh, whereby the Bible describes you as two becoming one flesh. You are as unified as it gets in, in concerning human beings. But even in that union, there's not a perfect unity, is there? Some of you know that because one of you is sitting there wishing that someone would turn that heater down while the other one is wishing they would turn it up at the very same time, right? So be unified, but recognize it's not a perfect unity. It's not the kind of unity that Father and Son and Spirit get to experience with one and another. Those of us who have the human nature in common are not perfectly unified, but the divine nature, friends, the divine nature is set apart. It is different than the human nature. What binds the three persons of the Trinity together is divine nature that they share with one another and with no one else. No other being 
can lay claim to being a part of that trinity, that divine nature. There are aspects of God's character that no other being can possess. These are the unique characteristics that make Father, Son, and Spirit each God. Each of these three persons, not different gods, but part of one true God. And each of these three persons must possess those unique qualities for they are the qualities that set them apart as God. It's the very definition of what God is. Some of these divine qualities you're likely familiar with. What I like to call the omnis. God is omnipowerful, right? Omnipotent. There's nothing he cannot do that is good. He is lacking no strength. He, he can do it all. He is almighty. Father, Son, and Spirit, almighty, each one of them. He is omnipresent. There is nowhere where he is not. You cannot get away from God. You cannot escape. It's not like Jesus is only at the right hand of God the Father. He is actually omnipresent and, and throughout all of creation right now. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is omniscient, meaning that God in each of his three persons knows all things. There's not a single secret hidden from him. Whatever you're feeling and thinking right now, God has intimate knowledge of that. It was known by him before you were even, you were even thought of by your mother and father. This is the power that belongs only to God and to no one else. To, to God also belong perfection and, and purity. There is nothing corrupt about God whatsoever. He is absolutely true all the time. There is, there is not a flaw or a crack. There's nothing that he's battling against within himself. He is perfectly what he is. And he is immutable. Father, Son, and Spirit will never become not what they are today. They are they're constantly what they are. This unchangeable steadfastness of God gives us part of the confidence that we have to proclaim his name and to look forward to the future with hope. It doesn't matter how dark things appear to us today, God doesn't change and his promises stay the same. There are other attributes of God that are a little bit more difficult to grasp. The simplicity of God, the fact that he is not made up of parts, but everything that makes God God is one thing. And that's, that's all that he is. He is He's not a composite. He is the perfection of love and truth simultaneously. They are not aspects that make him what he is. They flow out of him. We could speak of the impassibility of God, the fact that he is not subject to emotional ups and downs like every other creature is. While God does have a passionate heart, he can be jealous. Those things do not come upon him and sweep him off of his feet. They are expressions of his perfect will and his purity. So these are things that make God God. They make the Spirit God, they make the Father God, and they make the Son God. And thanks to 1 Corinthians 15, 28, we're going to have to ask the following question. Is will an aspect of the divine nature shared between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit? Or do each of the three members of the Trinity have their own will? Think about that for a second. You might not have ever asked yourself that question. We're going to ask that question today. Is will a part of the nature? Does the perfect unity of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit extend even to what each of these three persons desires? Now, why do we need to stress over this? You might be saying, Pastor, you're splitting hairs. Why is this question significant enough that we're dedicating time to it when we could just be marveling at the victory that Christ promises to win with us in the final days? Or when we could just be talking about practical ways that we can live out our affection to Him? Why are we dealing with this? I want to give you two reasons why before we go any further. First of all, it is a matter of worship. It is a matter of the honor that we give God 
as we come together right now to do exactly what we're doing. Why do we worship God and God alone? Because there's nobody else like him. Because he is one of a kind. He is holy. He is different, set apart. And our worship to him is to be exclusive. We just uh, mentioned, I'm glad that we went over uh, the second commandment in our catechism recital this morning. We just uh, did a couple weeks ago the first commandment, which is that you shall have no other God before me. So if you didn't catch that and you want to catch up on it, go back to our website on the podcast. You can listen to that on your commute or whenever you have some spare time, if you run on the treadmill or whatever you're doing. But it speaks about the importance of worshiping God exclusively and giving him all the glory that he deserves. And so we think about these things. We ask about the will of the Father, Son, and Spirit because we want to worship him rightly. And to worship him better, we need to understand him as best we can. The Trinity keeps us worshiping rightly. If God the Son exists next to God the Father and they both deserve worship, but we're only supposed to worship the one God, how do we do that? The Trinity helps us to unravel that mystery. So it's a matter of worship. Secondly, we think about these things because Christ urges us to think upon these kinds of things. If you read back through John 17, which is the high priestly prayer that Christ prays for his people, specifically for those who are his, he prays. And the prayer is beautiful as he, as he comes before the throne of the Father and he just, he pleads for us. He doesn't only plead for the 12 that are there with him in the upper room. He pleads for you and for me. And he pleads that we would know his oneness with God. He pleads that we would understand the unity that exists between him and that we would strive for a similar kind of unity. We see it in John 10.30 where Jesus declares, I and the Father are one. This is during the Passion Week before his crucifixion. As he tries to help the people understand just what they are looking at when they look at Messiah, he's, he's declaring to them that there is a unity between him and the Father that is so unique. And they're looking at it with their own eyes. They'll never see it anywhere else. So we should think about these things. We should, we should drink deeply from this well of knowledge that God has given to us. Verse 27 helped us to not think about the Father being under the feet of Jesus, subject to the rule of Jesus. But then verse 28 seems to make a statement that could potentially disrupt that unity. So let's continue to look carefully at this passage. Verse 28, when all things are subjected to him, meaning when all things are subjected to Jesus, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, to the Father, who put all things in subjection under Jesus, that God may be all in all. Now, if the Trinity holds true, and if we are to understand the unity of the Trinity to be so complete that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are equally God, then how can the Son be described here as being put into subjection to the Father? It's an important question to ask. And there are others asking this question. Not everyone's drawing the same conclusions. Right now, there's a theological viewpoint that's growing in popularity. Uh, it it kind of comes in two flavors. The first is the eternal subordination of the Son. And this camp says that, yep, this is just the way the Trinity is made. Jesus is God, but he is always below the Father. The Father pulls rank in all situations. He's essentially greater than the Son to some degree. Even if it's just a little bit, he is above the Son. Eternal subordination of the Son. And there's another camp that has said, well, that kind of makes me a little uncomfortable. I think about God the Father being a little bit better than the Son because 
rightfully, doesn't that make the Son something less than God? And so there's another modification of this viewpoint. It's called the eternal functional subordination of the Son. And that basically says that, you know, functionally, not, not in value, not in intrinsic worth, but in the way that they operate, the Son will always respond to the Father. He will always lead Jesus. The two guys who are most associated with this that you might have heard their names are a guy named Bruce Ware, pastor and teacher, and a man named Wayne Grudem, who's written a very uh, widespread uh, the, uh, book on systematic theology that a lot of people have, have checked out. These are faithful brothers. They're not heretics. But we do not agree on this doctrine. I, I cannot stand in the same, uh, the same plane as they do when we're thinking about the Trinity. Both ESS, eternal subjugation or subordination of the Son, and EFS, the eternal functional subordination of the Son, say that the Trinity is set up in such a way that God the Son always bows the will to the Father. We sometimes call the Trinity the Godhead. You've heard that term before. Those who hold the ESS and EFS would say that the Father is, in a sense, the head of the Godhead. Now, one of the keys here is that both of these teach that God the Father and God the Son have unique and sometimes opposing wills. That's, that's kind of a, a non-negotiable component of standing in the EFS camp or the ESS camp. This view is especially attractive to those churches who want to make a strong argument for complementarianism in the church as the primary structure for leadership in the church. And that's funny because we stand in that camp. We, we believe that complementarianism is clearly preached in the scripture. That meaning that God has given special roles to men and special roles to females. One role is not more important than the others. God has particularly ordained that man alone will be the elders over the church and that he will represent in a symbolic way the headship that God has over his church. That's something that we believe Scripture supports. In fact, we taught through that a few months back in 1 Corinthians 11.3 where the Apostle Paul wrote, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. But those in the EFS and the ESS camp they're setting up their understanding of the Trinity to support this idea of complementarianism, and I don't think it's necessary for them to do so. And in trying to make that argument stronger, they have made an even more important theological concept muddy and unclear. The order that God has laid out for the church is compatible with complementarianism. Obviously, that's not a, a popular position in a society that teaches that in order for men and women to be equal, they must be allowed to do all of the same things. Those who hold to EFS or ESS argue that if the son is eternally subordinate to the father, that would indicate that exclusively male eldership in the church actually follows the pattern of the Trinity. It would then be argued that women who willingly submit to the leadership of men in the church are acting in the pattern of God the Son who is submitting to God the Father throughout eternity. If it's good enough for the Godhead, it should be good enough for the structure of the church. But here's the problem. In order for the Son to be subordinate to the Father, the Father and the Son would have to have different wills. They would have to want different things. In order for me to submit to you, I have to want something different than what you want. I want the heat turned down. You want the heat turned up, right? This is probably why I want the heat turned down, right? I'm getting into the sermon today. I'm, I'm moving around. But we would have to have different wills in order for me to say, well, you know what? Other people need it warmer, so I submit to that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to subjugate myself to the needs of others. 
if you have the same will, there is no subordination necessary, is there? If God the Son and God the Father wanted different things, they would not be perfectly unified in their divinity. Think about that, friends. Does it make you uncomfortable to think about God the Father and God the Son not totally unified in their divinity? It should. It should make us uncomfortable to think about God in those terms. But don't we have a biblical example of that? Those in the EFS and the SS camp say we do. They point to Matthew 26, 39. So let's look at that passage. This is in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is asking his disciples to pray and to lift him up because he knows he's about to give his life on the cross. He's about to be judged and abandoned. And so he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it says, going a little farther, he, Jesus, fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And so those who stand firm in EFS or ESS would see, see, we have a perfect, perfect example here of God the Son having a different will than God the Father. Doesn't this definitively prove that the Son and, and the Father want different things? It, it might prove that Jesus is subjugated to the, the Father, but it means they want different things. So what was already complicated is about to get a little bit more complicated, friends. So hold on to your seats. Do not check out. Don't think this is above what you can understand because you can get this. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are three persons who share one divine nature. They are one in their being. But part of the wonder of them being three unique persons and not just one super being is that they are one in their being, but they are not one in their doing. There's a difference between being and doing. They are one in their being, meaning that, and this is sometimes called the ontological aspect of the Trinity, they are one in what they are. Their natures are not different. They are the same. Their natures are absolutely lined up compatible. The omnis that we spoke about, their purity, their power, these are not in any way different. But the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are in some ways separate in their doing. They are separate in what they accomplish. This is sometimes referred to as the economical aspect of the Trinity. Now, you don't need to memorize those two words. I give them to you because if you've done some reading in this field, you might identify with those terms and you might want to study it further. But if you don't get those terms, it's okay. Just recognize this, that, that in the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are absolutely unified in their being, in their nature, but they do different things. So the Father does not dwell within you, does he? The Spirit does that. The Spirit is your helper that has been given to you. He is your seal of promise. He is the one that enlightens you and gives you understanding. The Spirit does not take on flesh, does He? The Holy Spirit did not become incarnate. The Son does that. That's His role, His responsibility. Jesus was born of the, the Virgin. The Son does not send Himself forth from the heavens. The Father does that. He's the one who sins and declares that he's going to love the world to such a degree that he's going to give his only begotten son. The Father is the, is the one that sins. So they are perfectly unified in nature, but they act uniquely. They have unique roles and responsibilities. What is unique about the Son's role? He acts according to the shared will of God by gladly adding to his divine nature an authentic human nature. Now, the word added is very, very critical to our understanding here. 
And we're going to see this in, in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8. I'm going to put this on the screen for you. This is another letter written by the pen of the Apostle Paul. And this is one of the high Christology passages where we learn so much about the details of Jesus coming to earth to take on flesh. It says, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus, always existing, divine in every respect, not partially God, but fully God, has added to himself a second nature, a second nature, a human nature. That nature is not as grand as his true nature, his, his primary nature. It is less than because humans are created things. And so he has added this full humanity to his divinity. He was in the form of God, united to God by divine nature, and then he took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. He didn't change his divine nature for a human one. That's important to understand. He maintained his divine nature and added to it. He took to himself a human nature. Why? Because we needed him to. We needed a new Adam, a new covenant head, one who would in no way fall short of the covenantal requirements, one who would secure obedience for us and give us a righteousness that we could not earn for ourselves. So you might recall 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. He took this nature to himself because we needed a viable sacrifice. That sacrifice needed to be a human being. It needed to die and bleed as we would so that our penalty would be paid in full. Now, here's what I believe those who hold the eternal functional subordination uh, position fail to grasp. In taking on a human nature, Jesus also added to himself a true human will. A true human will. And the human will is not like the divine will. It is not omniscient. It is not all-knowing. So it must always rely upon the leadership of God. Man's will must be eternally subordinate to Yahweh because Yahweh is always greater. Man's not God. That's what it boils down to. God is greater. So forever and ever and ever, you will be learning of the excellencies of, of God, but never will you attain to omniscience. You will not know it all. You can't. You are not God himself. Man is not everything he needs to be in and of himself. Man is designed as a reflection of the image of God. So his glory is always dependent on the thing that it reflects. He must always rely on the image of God for the source of what he is to be and to know. By adding to himself a human nature, Jesus agreed to express himself as the perfect picture of what it means to be a human. What Adam would have been if he never sinned. That is why we can properly think of Jesus as growing in wisdom and stature with both God and men. Have you ever read that passage and you've been like, what? That passage in Luke where it talks about the development of Jesus Christ, that's referring to the human nature, not the divine nature of, of Christ, but the human nature. Because Jesus was truly human, he had to grow. He came into the world like an infant. He was subject to his parents. He had to uh, deal with vulnerability. He had experienced the, the, the harshness of, 
of, of the climate that he was in and, and hunger and sickness. These are things that he had to deal with. The fact that Jesus added this human nature to himself indicates to us that he went through everything that we have experienced as human beings. That is why we can look at the scripture and see that Jesus did not know the day or the hour when he would return. That was referring to the human nature of Jesus, not the divine nature, because the divine nature of Jesus knows all things and cannot forget. So the human nature of Jesus did not know the day or the hour. And that is why in John, Jesus says that he can only do what the Father tells him to do, because the human nature that Jesus added to himself must always be dependent upon the triune God. He's playing the role of human perfectly for us. That's what man is supposed to be, and he sets that standard in his perfect obedience to the, to the Father. Now, the fact that Jesus added this nature, this human nature, to himself means that he didn't trade his divine nature in for it. And in fact, he cannot, right? Because one of the things that makes him God is his immutability. He cannot become less than what he is. He will always be God. So alongside the divine nature of Jesus will now forever exist. Jesus in a human nature. And with that human nature comes a distinct, eternal, subordinate will. The will of man when broken by the corruption of sin, is not satisfied to submit to the greater will of God. We've all battled against that in our flesh. There are times when we know what we should do and we do not do it. The Apostle Paul speaks about that in Romans 7. It's evidenced by the sin all around us in the world, but the human will of Jesus was never corrupted by sin. From the moment of his divine conception, Jesus as man did what true undefiled man is designed to do. He worshiped God. He prayed to God. He humbled himself in submission to the superior will of God. He stole, stood boldly in representation of the things that God had declared to him. And since Jesus did not add this human nature to himself temporarily, there is a sense in which the human nature of Jesus will always be subordinated to Yahweh. For Jesus' human nature experienced resurrection and will live forever alongside the elect who will be raised up. And this is the aspect of Jesus' nature that's being spoken of here in 1 Corinthians 15, 28. The resurrected, perfect human nature of Christ will not put God the Father below his feet. The perfect human nature of Jesus will always be in subordination to God, for that is the proper expression of what it means to be human. But one final thing to consider here. At the very same time that Jesus exists in his human nature, he continues to exist in his divine nature. He continues to be perfectly united in will and in value with God the Father and God the Spirit. So he too is Yahweh. He is the great I Am. He claims that name for himself in the Gospels. So as the human nature of Jesus rejoices eternally in submitting to God, he is submitting to God in his fullness. He's not just submitting to the Father. He's submitting to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, just like you and I submit to. Essentially, Jesus is submitting to himself, his human nature, bowing humbly before his divine nature. So this is not a case of God, the divine son, bowing to the father. This is a case of the human nature that has been added to God, the son, bowing eternally to father, son, and spirit. So Christian, let us not make God, the son, less than what he is. In taking on a human nature, Jesus did not abandon his divine nature. Jesus is and always has been not only equal to the Father and the Spirit and power and authority, but also perfectly united both in will and in mission. They don't want different things. They want exactly the same things. 
Let us not make God the Father and God the Son to be in conflict with one another just so that we can justify the right doctrine of complementarianism. It's not necessary. The unique roles that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit play in the economic trinity is justification enough. It's pattern enough for us to follow as we live out obedience to the church structure that God has given to us. The structure that God has established for His church is not a structure of value. It is a structure of order and is good for both man and women when honored properly. And let us not be so intimidated by the complexity and the uniqueness of God that we ignore these important doctrines or pretend like they are too big for us to ever appreciate or grasp. Let us not leave this kind of thought up to those who write commentaries and teach in seminaries. Let us have a reverent awe and wonder at the complexity of God. Let us rejoice when even a little bit of God's divine light and truth falls to us and we're able to more accurately and richly declare, this is my God and there is no one else like him. To the Father and the Son and the Spirit be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. Let's submit ourselves to him in prayer. God, we praise you and thank you for being made yours. And though your uniqueness and your holiness is lofty, and it's hard for us to wrap our brains around it, Lord God. Sometimes it takes me reading through these concepts five, six, ten times before I can even present them to these, your people. I praise you, Lord God, that with the help of your Holy Spirit, we can know these things. If we cannot know them fully, we can at least admire them. We can stand in awe and wonder. God, let us not retreat from the truth. Let us not become afraid that we might say it wrong or understand it improperly and, and then just submit ourselves to only the milk of the word, God. But as your scripture continues to implore the church, let us desire also the meat. Let us eat the whole feast of your goodness to us. Father, we want this word to richly dwell in us, that we might think about it regularly, that we might uh, consider it when we praise you and when we worship you. And when we're tempted to sin against you, Lord God, let us remember the power of the Trinity. Let us remember how unique and and, and beautiful you are and the extent that you went to to redeem us from these very sins that tempt us, Lord God. May you have victory every time. We praise you and are grateful for you, and we look forward to continuing to keep you in our hearts and mind as we go about worshiping you this Lord's day. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.